Hey, I'm Michael Davis, the writer-director of Shoot 'em Up, and you're watching Shoot 'em Up. Hey, I always like logos that uh, sort of play with the company corporate image. And I love how this sets up uh, the tone of the movie, that we shoot out the sprockets of the uh, New Line logo. Um, obviously, there's sort of a man with no name influence from the Sergio Leone movies. That's why I like starting with these Sergio Leone close-ups, but sort of twisting it a little bit with the uh, carrot crunch, which sort of becomes uh, Clive Owen's uh, secret weapon during the movie. The movie originally started with Clive Owen delivering a baby in the middle of a gunfight. And I thought it was awesome. It was really great. He was picking people off left and right. And a lot of people love that. Uh, but a small minority actually was a little bit kind of confused. Um, and they clued in sort of to the drama of the poor mother delivering the baby rather than all this great, cool action. So we wanted to set the tone up of the movie a little bit earlier, setting up sort of that it was this wild, over-the-top American John Woo type movie. Um, so we ended up adding this new opening. Uh, a buddy of mine, Ben David Grabinski, sort of helped me figure out this whole Clive at the bus stop, hero at the bus stop idea, um, which I really like because it shows that he's a little bit unattached to community. He doesn't necessarily want to get involved, but when things get really, really uh, rough, he decides, oh, fucking hell, I'm going to have to get involved. Um, and, and Clive liked this. It uh, just sort of set up his character as this loner, but uh, he has a conscience. Um, and everybody laughs when Clive gets up here. I always also like the idea, the absurdity of this uh, pregnant woman shooting at this guy. It's just tonally, it's, the movie is wild, and, and I just like the sort of extreme imagery in this. Um, I also like this whole carrot business. It originally started with the idea that carrots are good for your eyes, eyes sight is good for shooting. Um, but the movie has this violent Looney Tunes quality, and the carrot ended up evolving as sort of its own char uh, character in the movie. Uh, this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie, is Clive. It shows his ingenuity. I like gunfights where the hero has to come up with a clever way to get out of a situation using his environment. And I like the fact that you set up his plan right here. He ends up shooting out the, uh, uh, the oil pan, which is going to allow him to slide really, really far and shoot all these guys behind their protection. Um, I also love the fact that at the last moment, Toby Emmerich, the head of the studio, said, why don't you guys spend a little bit more money on music for this movie? And we ended up pulling this uh, Nirvana tune, Breed. And I just thought it was a super cool idea to have a gunfight to Nirvana. Again, I sort of like the whole Rube Goldberg way that Clive gets out of these situations where he shoots the table to create a ramp and then blow all these guys away. And it, as I said before, you can kind of see this has set up the tone that it's this wild, fun actioner and actually makes this next scene where Clive's delivering the baby more fun and it takes sort of the drama out of it. It really is just all the fun things you can do with a gunfight. Uh, and so I'm glad that we ended up doing this new opening. I love the shot where the bullet shells land on the girl's belly. Um, the, the other thing I'll point out, originally the guy who gets shot in the ass uh, about a, 10 seconds ago, he actually was going to annoy Clive with his nasty, noisy gum chewing. So not only does Clive shoot the guy out with the uh, ponytail, because he hates guys with ponytails, we were going to set up that the guy, uh, he hates gum chewing too. But we felt like to move this sequence along, we only needed to have him set up one thing that he hates, which is sort of his running theme. Paul Giamatti, wow, uh, really uh, lucky getting Paul. That was actually one of my executives, Jeff Katz's idea. He pitched me, how about 
Paul Giamatti playing the part of Hertz, the guy who's coming after Clive and wants to kill the baby. And I initially thought, I had to think about it. And then after I thought about it, I started getting attached to this idea. Oh, my God, Giamatti would be so fresh. Um, I like him playing against type. Um, but he actually turned out to be, wow, kind of a really scary villain. Um, when I talked to Paul, he says, yeah, you know, earlier on in my career, before I lost my hair, um, I actually played a lot of bad guys. He even said he did a play where he played a crack addict who ends up stoning a baby to death. So he kind of has uh, experience uh, <laughs> with trying to take out babies. Um, uh, I also kind of feel that since he played all these sort of low self-esteem characters in Sideways, that he is just sort of bursting to play this alpha male tough guy. I also love the fact, if you notice, the gun that we gave Paul is this Desert Eagle, which is the biggest handgun in the world. And I just like the idea that he's this small guy, but he feels like he has to have the biggest gun in the world. Um, if you notice his cell phone, his cell phone is overly large. He's got a big car he drives around in. Um, the two uh, jokers that sort of are his henchmen are guys that are less attractive than he is because I'd like to think that this character hurts once guys around him that makes him feel good about himself. Um, but Paul was just a real blast to work with. He also is proud of the fact that uh, in high school he was on the swim team and he says he actually was pretty athletic. And, and if you watch the movie, he actually is good. Um, I should say here, Clive Owen was my absolute number one choice in the entire world to play the part of Mr. Smith. Um, I think he's got the right combination of sort of like, you know, Humphrey Bogart, a little bit of Han Solo, a little bit of James Bond. And the movie, the script was so fresh, and, and I felt like we needed a fresh action face. And Clive was the guy that you'd seen in Sin City. You had seen him in those BMW shorts, that he was the guy that you wanted to see in an action movie but hadn't yet. And I just felt like he would bring a freshness, and he's just, he's just the man. He looks great driving a car, great shooting a gun. Uh, women love him, and I can't believe that I got Clive to do the, the movie. Uh, I also have to say, he was just about the easiest, nicest, supportive, supportive guy in the world to uh, make the movie with. Um, a couple times he ended up going to the studio and saying, hey, lay off Michael. Michael's doing a great job. I'm, he's getting more shots in, in one week than I ever have on any other movie. Um, uh, he's just uh, amazing. He knows exactly what he wants. And so he was a real champion of me um, and uh, always be grateful for that. You know, not that many people laugh at this joke, but I like the idea that here he sees this woman with her exposed breast, and he says, nice knockers. It just makes me laugh. It makes the Giamatti guy kind of devious, but he would do that in situations. Guys do that. Um, anyway, here we have the uh, scene where uh, Clive is going to shoot out the sign that says, fuck you. Um, and we actually had a contest in the uh, production office to spell out uh, what would be the words that would spell out fuck you and then ultimately Giamatti saying fuck you too. Um, and actually two people came up with the uh, fault trucking tool. Um, I'm always surprised. People laugh uh, in, in screenings at the fuck you, but they don't expect the fuck you too. And that's where the big laugh comes. And, and I'm glad I did the fuck you too, because it sort of sets up this sort of mano a mano back and forth between Clive and Giamatti. Uh, and I like it. I've always wanted to do a scene where you spell something out. I love that uh, Kevin Reynolds film Fandango, where he spells out help with the laundry um, while he's up, these guys are up in an airplane. You should check that movie out. I like that.
Again, the other thing I like about the Giamatti character, Hertz, is he's not a guy that just stands around and lets his men do everything. He gets in and sort of helps them out. And he even has this philosophy, every second counts. Hence, he uh, brings the dead woman to the car. Here's the fellow I mentioned to you who um, was going to be the gum chewer that would annoy Clive who got shot in the ass. Um, but he's still, he's got a big enough screen roll. I like, I like the guy's face. When the woman draws a gun, I mean, who expects a pregnant lady to pull a piece on you, huh? And who was this man? Uh, you may notice on Paul that he has this great comb over. Uh, and I had a lot of t fun with Paul talking to him about what his hairstyle should be. And we ended up coming up with this sort of Mark Spitz, you know, 70s handlebar uh, mustache goatee. But if you look, it's very uneven, as if the guy doesn't have time to shave properly because he's so intent on following his prey. And the great thing is, is Paul had been nominated for uh, Sideways for uh, Academy Award, and he had to go to the Oscars with that nasty haircut and that nasty goatee. And he'd be on the red carpet, and everybody said, hey, dude, what's up? You don't look like your Oscar fodder. Um, and I really appreciated him doing that for me. We also at one point considered uh, shaving his head entirely and making him entirely bald. And we called it the full Blofeld, as if he were going to be sort of one of those Bond villains. We shot the movie up in Toronto. Uh, the crews up there were fantastic. Um, I like this scene because it really sort of sets up this dilemma. The, the central image of the movie I liked was this hard-boiled hero stuck with the most innocent thing in the world. The movie obviously is inspired by that great scene in the John Woo movie, Hard Boiled, where Charlie Yun Fat has a baby and a gun and is shooting everybody while he has the baby. And I always thought that was a great idea for a whole movie, not just a scene. The first scene I came up with was Clive delivering the baby in the middle of a gunfight. And at first I thought, well, maybe this would be an intro to a new action hero, and then I would drop the baby angle. But I just thought it was such a great idea, the gunman with the baby, that I had to solve the issue of, you know, making the baby a main part of the story. And then even heightening it by making the baby the target. It's just so absurd and dark. Um, and that's the thing, we, in the movie, we were always struggling with getting the tone right and to making sure the audience knew that it would, they could laugh at it. Hence, the hero that drops his gun into a shitty toilet. I, I think all these little bits of humor throughout the movie take the edge off this sort of dark premise that these, are, these assassins are coming after the baby. Oh, this scene I like very, very much. I met with this, uh, this actor, what is his name, Nick Chinland. He was played a lot of villains. He was in Con Air. And he said, hey, Michael, I'd love to play Hertz. I know you're talking to Paul Giamatti, but hey, I have this great scene for this movie, um, and you can use it, you can steal it. It doesn't even involve my, my character. And Nick was telling me, you know, in the bathroom, when he's taking the gun apart, he should do it on a baby-changing table. And I really like this because you get a lot of notes when you're making a movie, and rarely do you get ideas like that that are just so quintessentially great. And so thank you, Nick. That was a great idea, and I did steal it from you. Again, I kind of like this scene, the sort of abstraction that we do, the black and white flashing lights of the muzzle that momentarily illuminates the uh, hero's face. I, I, I'm a big fan of trying to come up with some kind of design or film graphics, and, and I like the way this small scene plays out. And again, there's a, the, the movie has all the cool things you can do with a gunfight, and I just kind of am tickled by the idea that this hairdryer will actually dry the wet bullet in uh, Clive's gun so he can scare this guy off of him. Um, 
And again, that's how it started. After the baby delivery uh, scene, I just said, you know what? The movie's going to be called Shoot 'em Up. My rule in making the movie was no explosions and every action scene had to be gun-centric. I wanted to come up with all the possible variations of a gunfight. And, and that was my premise. That, that was my rule. I couldn't do um, a car chase that didn't have guns in it. it ha everything had to be around a shoot 'em up This is one place where I felt, feel Clive really protected me. Um, in one of the later drafts of the script, I ended up cutting this scene. Um, my premise in making the movie was we had to service the action. Every action scene had to be the best it could be. And I felt like, well, this was going to take me a half a day. I had to get a bus, you know, control traffic, and it would take a half a day away from me being able to shoot some of my action stuff. And when I gave the new draft to Clive, Clive says, you know, I really miss this scene. It says a lot about the character, and, and it does. And so I ended up putting it back in because of Clive. I mean, he, in, in some ways, he, he knew the story better than me. Uh, it also gets a great laugh when he puts his sock on the baby's head. Um, this joke here that uh, Paul Giamatti tells, which is, you know why a gun is better than a wife? Um, because you can put a silencer on a gun. I actually surfed the web and went to an NRA humor site. And they had a list of all these great <laughs> NRA gun jokes. And so I figured, hey, why don't we put one in here? It might be kind of funny. Um, again, my uh, executives, Kale Boyder and Jeff Katz, were always helping me make the movie, as, long, as well as my producers, Don Murphy, uh, Rick Benatar, Susan Monford. Um, and they were the ones that came up with sort of the Looney Tunes uh, uh, ringtone, which ended up being uh, actually the Kill the Wabbit Wagner, uh, because we actually had gotten the rights from Warner Brothers for a while to use Looney Tunes, and at the last second they go, wait a second, this movie is called Shoot 'em Up. I don't know if we want our Looney Tunes in this uh, movie. Um, again, I, I, going back to the whole thing about all the cool things you could do with a gunfight, I knew that I couldn't just do guys shooting at each other. Um, I, it had to be other things. And I like this whole Rube Goldbergian quality to the movie where he's using the gun to move objects, not always shooting at people. And I love how he uses the bullets to spin the carousel uh, so that Giamatti, the sniper, can't get a shot at the baby. Also, as originally written, actually, uh, Paul's character, Mr. Hertz, was going to be supervising a sniper. But then again, I came up with this idea. I like this whole mano a mano between Mr. Smith and Hertz. And I like the fact that he is a leader of the, the, the bad guys, but he's okay about getting his hands dirty. He's willing to do some of the work. And I thought it was really great that Paul Giamatti is actually is a sniper. I just love the image of that. Uh, Paul was also really great at uh, poking fun at himself with his uh, fuck me sideways joke. Fuck me sideways. I should say I would not be here today if it wasn't for my producers, Don Murphy, Rick Benatar, and Susan Monford. I went to film school with Don uh, down at USC, and I kept up with him over the years, but hadn't been uh, um, a real close friends. We talked about once a year, and I hadn't never come up with a Don Murphy-type uh, script. You know, he did Transformers, he did uh, um, Natural Born Killers. Um, and I had this project set up with some producers that had made my, a bunch of my low-budget movies. And I just found after three or four years trying to get it going that nobody was going to give Michael Davis a big studio movie. And my producers, you know, as hard as they tried, weren't the guys to get it made. So I gave it to Don, and um, he flipped out over the script. 
actually Rick Benatar also um, at the time read it and sort of said, Don, you really need to take a look at it. And the two of them and then Susan just fell in love with it. Um, and they, Don said, look, I don't want to do any real option papers. It's just going to be a handshake. And, um, uh, and if you, as long as you want me to work on this movie, I will. And that's how it started. Uh, Susan, uh, one of the producers, was also really great. She was always showing me great photographs of, like, you know, third world brothels and helping me with the color palette. You can also see in the movie here that the first part of the movie is very gritty, slightly desaturated. Um, but because there are all these sort of fetishes in the movie, whether it's the lactating hooker fetish, or I even think gun collecting is a fetish, that I wanted the different subworlds to have these colors that popped. So every once in a while you no you'll notice, like the brothel, the color will be very saturated, and then the movie will continue on and it'll have these sort of this uh, sodium uh, vapor light yellow greenish tone that's sort of grittier and then you'll go to the rock and roll club and it'll pop with color and it was a purposeful choice to make certain locations pop with color and others to be um, sort of this darker grimy you know Mr. Smith type world uh, the phrase that we used when we were creating is we were looking for a urban dystopia um, and I think we, we really achieved it um, I love the fact that I have this character of Monica Bellucci in the movie. Uh, do we, her name is Donna Quintana for uh, legal reasons, but the, the initials are DQ, like Dairy Queen, because she satisfies men with a uh, mommy fetish. And it makes sense in the story that Clive, who else would he go to, to for help but a woman who could not only help him with the baby but actually physically feed the baby. I think it's that sort of dark, as Clive calls, wicked humor that really makes the movie, movie fun. Um, and, and one of the reasons I also like Monica in this is there was a choice. This is a very sort of American-centric movie. Um, and here I got this guy, Clive Owen, playing it British. Uh, when we were casting and uh, we came up, talked to CAA about getting Clive, um, uh, they asked me, are you going to have Clive do it with an American accent or a British accent? And I ended up saying a British accent because I think Clive looks cooler um, with a British accent. And I think the British are better at giving that sort of dark humor with, uh, you know, the British are better at it. And so we cast Clive in this American-centric movie playing a Brit. But I like the whole feeling of a melting pot. And uh, with uh, Monica Bellucci playing the Italian, and I think the sort of whole, you know, Madonna and child Italian art imagery sort of makes her right for DQ and also sort of balances out Clive as the Brit in this movie. I can't believe I got Paul Giamatti to do this scene. Um, I think it's really funny. It uh, helps him get a clue. And Paul is just brilliant. It's fun. It's twisted. Um, and as Paul says, this is the best love scene he's done in his entire career. Uh, my secret hope is that it gets nominated for an MTV Movie Award for Best Love Scene. Although I think maybe the gunfight uh, shootout while they're making love will also uh, maybe uh, get nominated. Um, but uh, Paul was a real sport, as was the actress Ramona Pringle. I already told you, Smith, you're not welcome in the land of milk and honey. Uh, Paul and Monica both uh, talked about this scene. It's almost, to him, it's sort of a, he treats it almost like a sex scene. You get a sense that Paul Giamatti doesn't have the greatest sex life at home and there's trouble at home. Um, we, I tried something here that, that didn't quite work, but I, I tried it. You'll see here that uh, Paul talks to Monica in Italian. 
And I didn't tell Monica that I was going to have Paul say something to her, something really, really, really nasty in Italian. And I ended up doing sort of that uh, babel of fish or uh, whatever that uh, translator on your Internet is to come up with a nasty Italian phrase, which actually didn't make any sense. But Paul delivered it to her. And she was like, huh? And so we said, well, you know, we thought it was cool that Paul's character knew Italian. So she ended up saying, you know, you should have Paul say this to me, which basically the Italian breaks down to you're a little pig which is something apparently in Italian really nasty. It's worse than being called a slut. Um, anyway, uh, I tried one of those sort of surprise things where directors surprise their actors, but I didn't have the right line for it. I also like in here what Peter Pow did with the, uh, he's my DP, he did Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, did an amazing job, totally protected me. And one of our color palette themes was sort of the, the green and the red. A lot of Toronto had the, this red brick with this green trim. And we wanted to continue it on in the uh, lighting phases. Certainly uh, later on, Clive's crib has got this green sort of uh, fluorescent look. But I like how Peter added it here into this, this scene with the hot red on uh, Paul's face. Um, Peter was constantly saving my butt. He ended up uh, looking at the animation that if you look uh, in the extras of the D of this DVD, I ended up animating out 15 minutes of the movie with 17,000 hand-drawn sketches of how I wanted the action choreography to be. And Peter saw that, fell in love with it, and goes, oh, my God, I have to work on this movie. And he was just... Not only did he memorize every shot, every movement I wanted in the movie, he would end up enhancing it. Um, he'd always add these little lyrical camera moves, placing the second camera in a place where I, I hadn't expected to get coverage. I wouldn't have been able to make this movie without Peter Powell. He was just the, the most awesomest, awesomest uh, person to work with. I also uh, really appreciated working with uh, Gary Frutkoff, my production designer. He really did pick up with sort of the urban dystopia and the color themes that I wanted to uh, put in the movie, the greens and the reds. Um, he built a number of the sets. Uh, later on in the movie, you'll see this great stairwell that Clive rappels down and shoots everybody that fits seamlessly into the movie. He built the rooftop with the fuck you sign so we didn't have to sit out in the cold and freeze our butts off. Um, Gary had done some great movies like the Soderbergh movie, Out of Sight. And I just feel really lucky that I got uh, surrounded with such great people to make my first studio feature. Um, I work with Denise Cronenberg. She's David Cronenberg's uh, sister. Did a wonderful job with the costumes, uh, especially like what she did with uh, Monica's outfit. Um, and then uh, Peter Amundsen, my good pal, great editor, uh, just coming up with a sort of impressionist, always on the run, always energized editing. This shot here kind of gives me a little bit of the willies. It looks like it's an easy shot. There was the, this we did 15 takes of, uh, probably the most takes I did in the entire movie. I don't know what it was um, this night. It was cold. It was beginning the snow, and just that those couple of whip pans just seemed to never time out quite right. Um, ultimately, we did get it here. The line originally here was, you know, what the difference is between a BMW and the porcupine. Um, <laughs> 
Uh, but Clive, since he uh, had worked for BMW, wanted to change it to, you know, the difference between this luxury car and a porcupine. Uh, with the car, the pricks are on the inside. But I do like throughout the movie that you know Clive smashes up this uh, BMW. Later on in the car chase, his BMW gets riddled with bullets. And we looked at other cars that would be good for Clive, and um, he just looks best behind a BMW. So we ended up having him smash up all these BMWs in the movie. Uh, if you get a chance, you should see all those BMW shorts that Clive was in. He totally rocks in it. Um, he's just a straight-up great action hero. My line producer, Doug Curtis, uh, who had done a number of new line movies, uh, was really great at sort of squeezing money out of this budget. We made it for $39 million, which is not a lot for a movie that has like 10 or 11 big, big action set pieces. Uh, and sort of, sort of, you know, fathered me through the studio process. And uh, the great AD, Robert Lee, really just kept us on schedule. Uh, you know, people tell me I shouldn't brag about this, but in the 55 days of shooting, um, I only went over uh, overtime an hour and a half total, which is insane. And I think part of that was the planning, the great crew we had. Peter Powell was so fast. Also, because I had directed five super-duper low-budget movies that were a million dollars or less, I feel like it taught me the value of time and how to get the most out of a crew and the most out of a shot, knowing that you just had to get the piece of the shot that you needed. I sometimes was editing within the camera. Um, and I think having done the low-budget movies really prepared me for doing this. Uh, I really like this element about Clive's character, that he's the angriest man in the world. And throughout the movie, uh, when somebody does something that's not so nice, he kind of dispenses justice. I think in an action hero, uh, an action movie that's sort of larger than life, you need to create these moments where the audience can identify with the character and the story. And we've all been in front of someone who's been a bad driver, and we really just wanted to ram him off the road. And I think this wish fulfillment aspect of Clive, where he takes care of business and takes care of basically takes care of the assholes in the world I, I really like this scene we, we, we ended up shortening this scene there was actually going to be uh, Paul was going to get uh, interrupted by some kid on the street who was going bang bang in a cowboy outfit and kind of like in that strangers on a train scene where the guy pops the balloon uh, Paul was going to turn and shoot the little cap gun out of the kid's uh, hand and be really nasty and scare this kid with his own gun um, and the kid, the night of the uh, shooting, it was so late and he was so tired, we just ended up couldn't getting the scene in the can. Um, but I always uh, wished we had. Uh, it still works anyway. I also, in originally writing the script, I thought it would go too far. But uh, uh, here we got this guy, Clive Owen. He's basically a homeless hero. I wanted to create the most sort of underdog possible character. He's a hero who rides the bus. He has food stamps. He lives in an abandoned building. He sells his blood for money. And then later on, this pawnbroker asks him, you know, what about that check from the sperm bank? And he actually, I, in my mind, would have a check coming from the sperm bank. You'll also notice on this woman here that she has like three or four watches on her arm. I just wanted to give everybody in the movie sort of their own little fetish. And I liked her fetish was that she liked time. Maybe she has them set for different time zones. Uh, you, you'll probably never notice it, but it's there, it's there for me. Uh, um, I also love this scene. It's just so that the here DQ is giving a blow job so that she can take care of the baby and buy the baby a bulletproof jacket. I just to me that makes me laugh. Um, it's kind of a surprise. It's not quite an action scene. I also like Clive, you know, 
you know, pissing this guy off and slamming his fingers shut. Uh, I certainly like sort of their back and forth, this beginning of the romantic tension between them, that these two characters, DQ and Mr. Smith, obviously have history, and they, they already feel like almost like a husband and wife, you know, mother and father to this child. And that certainly was one of the ideas behind all this mayhem is to ground it in here's this guy he's got a fractured he's a broken person and this baby and then meeting dq kind of heals him and they make this makeshift family i also kind of like and we we talked a little bit about this that clive is sort of a blue collar bond or an anti-bond and instead of having gadgets you know he has the carrot that he kills people with and i also kind of like this uh, rat as being his keys to get into uh, his building. It also was a great way. I had a bit of uh, exposition where he explains why he can't go to the police and all this. And normally that stuff uh, stands out as, oh yeah, here's the explanation part. But I kind of disguised it here with, again, this sort of Rube Goldbergian uh, uh, contraption of opening the door. You don't notice you're being spoon-fed the uh, exposition because I'm giving you something interesting to watch. Also, later on, Clive ends up puppeting all these guns by putting strings on triggers and pulling them. And by having this string-like contraption in the doorway sort of sets up that he's good at this. So it's not out of the blue later on, the whole warehouse puppeting strings business. I know what people do, and I know what people think. Um, I also, it was a purposeful choice. In a lot of these movies, whether it's The Fugitive or Die Hard, they spend a lot of time with the villain trying to, f him figuring out, how do I find this bad guy? Who, who is this person? You know, how am I going to trap them? And since you've seen it in so many movies, and you know these guys are going to eventually catch up to the hero, I purposely didn't spend a lot of time um, uh, talking about the plot and how the villain follows him because we know it's going to happen. Uh, I also um, looked up, you'll see later on, Paul describes himself as a, uh, what does he call it, a forensic behavioral consultant. Uh, he's not a, um, a CSI guy. He's a behavioral forensic uh, consultant, which I actually found on the Internet is actually a real job, and I thought it sounded cool. Uh, the Internet is a great place to find sort of uh, references. Uh, once again, I just love the whole carrot business. Um, in a lot of these hard-boiled movies, they always have the character, the hero, smoking a cigarette or drinking, um, you know, alcohol. And I like the fact that his character tick is something, you know, healthy, which is the, uh, the, the biting the carrot. Um, I also find that I like in scripts, usually the secondary characters are given the weird sort of quirky stuff. And the, the straight men in the leads are kind of boring. Uh, so what I try to do in my writing is if I come up with something funny or quirky, I try to give it to the lead. It ends up making them different because most people aren't willing to make the lead characters a little weird. And, and, I, and I think it works here. Again, it also sort of supports the uh, violent Looney Tunes. I should point out, um, you know, I don't really feel, well, I should say, Paul Giamatti's line here, besides violence is one of the most fun things to watch, I looked that up on uh, the internet, and that's actually a Quentin Tarantino uh, quote. Um, and I thought it was appropriate to Paul here. Um, but I do want to point out, every once in a while, some of the critics have you know, mentioned this is kind of Tarantino-esque. And I really don't think it is, because Quentin, obviously, his dialogue is unbelievably amazing. Um, but he deals with characters that are gray, that are morally gray. You know, you look at... Uh, um, John Travolta and Pulp Fiction. These guys are not good people. Um, and they're more crime action pieces. I'm more interested in doing the classic, you know, diehard James Bond, Indiana Jones, good guy hero. 
so I don't really find uh, this movie to be influenced by that, although I was a big, big fan of Kill Bill. Um, one thing I should point out here is, and I think it ended up working out well, the music in the movie. Originally, we scored it more traditionally, um, just a regular action score, symphony score. Um, and we realized that we needed to sort of tell the audience that this movie is a little bit different. And the, the, the regular sort of symphony score emphasized the dramatic parts of the story, but not the sort of the sense of humor. And because the storyline has this sort of dark undertone, we needed, felt we needed to lighten it up. And we ended up finding that sort of a rock score was going to work better. I had this great music editor, Brian Richards, who put the, um, um, I guess it's Motorhead, um, Ace of Spades, underneath this crib gunfight. And we go, oh, my God, this thing rocks out. It's so exciting. And we felt like Clive looked so cooler with a rock guitars underneath him that it influenced uh, my thinking about the music and the music really changed and elevated the movie you'll see that we have ACDC Motley Crue we have some other sort of source cues I mentioned the Nirvana and, and, I, and I do think it makes the, the movie uh, better and also helps us uh, nail the tone um, this is one of my favorite sequences in the movie it is probably what I just call we needed the classic gunfight um, the thing I wanted to add to it is that throughout the entire piece, Clive is on the run. A lot of the um, American action films, they have the guys hiding behind a crate or a column, and they jump out and they fire and then they hide. I always describe this sequence in a lot of our movies sort of like a run, Lola, run with a gun. Um, and I love the fact that Clive is always, always on the move. It just makes it more cinematic, more energized. Um, and again, the, the sequence has some of my favorite bits in it, which I, I love action heroes that throw themselves around, that are diving, that are acrobats, sort of a Cirque du Soleil of violence. Uh, it kind of reminds me when I was a kid, when you're in the backyard sort of playing cowboys and Indians, where you're rolling around in the leaves and diving. It just, it's just more exciting. Um, it's probably not, definitely not realistic, but um, it's great to watch. This is one of my favorite bits, where he uses the bodies to create the steps so he can go over the... Uh, um, wall of cabinets to shoot this guy. Just think it's clever. He's using dead bodies to help him get some, himself somewhere. Um, I, I, I just like it. Um, the other thing is definitely influenced by the John Woo Asian Hong Kong movies. They're not so worried about the body count and keeping the movie realistic. A lot of American movies, they have a lot of glass breaking and walls get pockmarked with bullets. But I have to say, there's nothing more satisfying with an action and reaction of a hero shooting a gun, and then you see a guy get hit. I don't really care um, you know, that it's not realistic. The body count is very satisfying. It's what you want to see. I ended up uh, talking to this radio DJ who was doing a um, promotional uh, screening of Shoot 'Em Up, and he said the second time he was going to watch it, he was going to have uh, do a count of how many body, how many bodies got shot, or how many kills there were in the movie. And someone else in the audience also kept count. Uh, the person in the audience came up with 127. Uh, the radio DJ came up with 134 deaths in the movie. Uh, I'd be curious if um, any of you guys out there could actually do a count and verify this for me. I just love this whole rappelling down the stairwell bit. It's just, I love the fact that he blows the guy away, uses his cable to, to go down. Again, I don't just like gunfights and violence. I like the character using the environment in a clever way to get out of it. And this was one of the best bits here. Really that good? Come on, boys! 
And again, I, I think probably this is the best line in the movie uh, that Paul has here. It nails the tone. And also, I don't want to say it winks at the audience, but it acknowledges to you all that I know that this is larger than life. And, and maybe these guys do suck a little bit for not nailing Clive. Um, one thing I also like to put into my movies, this movie definitely satisfies the action genre with all its action set pieces, but I also like to put a little bit of my own personality into the movie, and I love dogs, and so I thought it was funny to hear Clive throughout the movies going, I hate this, I hate that, and then he doesn't want to shoot dogs because he likes dogs. It makes me laugh, partly it's because of me, and I also think it's a great character bit. Uh, I also uh, did want to say the uh, limerick, that Paul delivers in the opening scene about there once was a woman who was quite begat was the dirty limerick that my dad told me. And so I love the fact that a piece of my dad is in the movie. Um, uh, I, I think that's what helps movies. Is it, again, this movie is larger than life, but if you can come up with some truthfulness from your own life, uh, I don't know, it somehow resonates and I, I think makes the movies better. What is it? It's a baby's diaper. Again, this was a crazy night. We ended up shooting the alleyway. We ended up shooting the um, uh, the after the skydiving aftermath, uh, and and this scene all in uh, one day. And also Clive uh, falling unconscious inside the factory. That's just what we had to do. We had to jump around from location to location um, uh, to get all this stuff in the can for the price that we had. I had a great visual effects supervisor, Ed Aristorza, who's gone on to work on Zack Snyder's Watchmen. Um, and in a couple places like here, hopefully you don't notice, that's actually a digital uh, uh, baby face replacement shot. Obviously it's too dangerous. The, I mean, a newborn's head wouldn't really be supported. I always thought that the uh, flak jacket would be so tight that it would support its neck. Anyway, throughout the movie, um, in big places like the skydiving and little places like putting in uh, uh, digital heads of uh, the baby, um, Ed Aristorza really came through. This guy here, Stephen, is a big, big sort of radio personality in Canada. Very, very uh, distinct voice and, um, and, and certainly is the guy that would have actually a, a penis ring here for Monica to yank. Oh, the other thing I wanted to say about the DQ character is that, you know, I had written this script about Alfred Kinsey, the famous sex researcher. And that's actually how I found out about uh, this fetish of men uh, liking going to women that were lactating and, um, and all that. And I never got to make that movie. But again, I like to think that uh, my research into uh, sexual practices from another screenplay led me to create this sort of funny, unique uh, hooker with a heart of gold. Um, and, and so it's, you know, film business is very, 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 very hard. A lot of people say, oh, Michael, you made all these low-budget teen romantic comedies. How are you end up, how'd you end up making this action movie? Um, and, and even some people said, well, that guy's not the guy to do shoot him up And I, the thing is, is that the film business is so hard, it's so hard to get a chance to make any kind of movie. And I made this movie eight days a week for $200,000 with Kerry Russell, and it was, you know, sort of like a little cult hit. And so everybody wanted me to start making these low-budget uh, romantic teen comedies. And, hey, you know, it's a chance to make a movie. And I love the teen, teen romantic comedy. And you, you go um, with what you can do. Um, you know, as a kid, I was a big James Bond fanatic. I wrote my own James Bond novels when I was in sixth grade. One was called Masqueraded Death. The other one was called Spearhead. Uh, and I've always wanted to do an 
action movie ever since I was a kid. I, I geeked out uh, when Raiders of the Lost Ark came out, and I dressed up like Indiana Jones the night the movie opened. And I've been dying. Really, this is the kind of movie I've always wanted to make. But people think that filmmakers have, you know, 100% control of choice of what movies they make, and that's not true. These movies are very, very, very expensive. Um, and it's one of the few products in the world that isn't test marketed before the, move, uh, the product is actually made. So every time anybody's making a movie, it's a real gamble. Um, and so um, I didn't have control. I'm glad to made my low-budget movies, and they prepared me for this. Again, I love the sort of the, the deep green here. It was definitely a choice um, to keep our color palette narrow. I like it when movies feel like there's a hand, an artist's hand in uh, the color palette of the movie. Um, I certainly love the way the bottles glow here, and that was something we talked about with Peter Powell and um, uh, Gary Frutkoff. Um, I should say a story that I missed telling, that story in the alleyway where uh, DQ gives the uh, blowjob. Um, I had to talk to Peter Powell about something about that scene, and I ended up taking him down to the alleyway, just he and I, and we had called that set uh, Blowjob Alley. And when we, when, I, when we came back, everybody was sort of teasing it that Michael and Peter Powell had gone, you know, by themselves to Blowjob Alley. And I told everybody, well, I just wanted everybody to know that Peter Powell was, um, uh, I was Hidden Dragon, and he was Crouching Tiger. <laughs> Um, and everybody laughed. And I, I try to keep that kind of atmosphere on, on the set because uh, it's hard making movies. Yeah, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I was Hidden Dragon. Again, this is the second time it happens in the movie. Um, that Clive kills somebody with a carrot. I just, I kind of find it amusing. Obviously, it's larger than life, but uh, it gets a laugh. You'll notice throughout the movie we have Clive giving these sort of um, darker, you know, one-liners after he kills somebody. But we didn't want to do it every time. Like here we recorded a line after he killed the guy. He says to DQ, I told you carrots were good for the eyes. But we thought it was too predictable to have every time have a one-liner. So um, hopefully you'll see that I was restrained in, in that sequence. This scene here is one of my favorite scenes. It's done very, very simply. Um, but what I like about it is the movie's been so outrageous at this point that nobody has really sort of asked, well, how did DQ become this lactating hooker? Um, and then finally here, you know, when Clive says, yeah, I screwed up. I, I, I didn't ask you what happened to your baby. It's almost like the audience saying, yeah, we've been so caught up in this adventure, we never asked the questions. We're kind of like Clive. We're kind of jerks like Clive. And it's, I feel like it emotionally grounds the movie. Uh, as I was making it, I really felt like, hey, Clive sort of nailed this great, hard-boiled, cool action hero. Paul Giamatti in his villain villainy, it sort of adds a little bit of comedy to it. And I really like the fact that Monica grounds the movie in sort of the emotional core. I felt like they all brought a different texture that worked together. Um, but they all brought something different to the movie. And you never even think to ask me what happened to my own child. There's a scene coming up here that, again, I, I tell you, Clive Owen, was I felt like, was my partner, my collaborator in creating this character of Mr. Smith. Um, the scene that's coming up is where he sort of bonds with the baby and explains the different parts of the gun to the baby, and the baby ends up smiling at the gun. 
And uh, the scene was always written uh, in, in the script, but Clive read it and goes, you know, this is a great scene, but I think it can be better. It's not specific enough. I'd like to go to the armorer and get more specific about the different parts of the gun so that I can uh, use that in the scene with the baby. And he ended up coming back, and he had rewritten the monologue, and it was so much better, um, especially at the very end where he says, you know, and this is your safety. And then he lifts his finger up and goes, but this is actually your number one safety. I like it because it sort of shows that this character that's so tough is sort of softening up, warming up through this experience. That even though it's an action movie, the character is undergoing some character transformation. And I really, really like the way Clive rewrote the scene and made it more specific um, and more charming. Uh, we also got really lucky that day that the baby actually smiled at the gun when it was put in front of its face. That wasn't planned. We just It was one of those happy accidents that uh, uh, sometimes you get lucky. Again, I, I, the movie is larger than life, but I, when I watch the movie, I do feel a romantic tension here. I do feel like Clive and Monica are these two broken people. I had interviewed a number of younger actresses, but I really felt like you needed a character like DQ. Uh, I need an actress like Monica who had some life experience to balance out um, Clive's um, life experience, that the two of them were a good match chemistry-wise, and also they were good at playing these broken people. Now here you can see what I'm talking about. Look at that baby smiling. Unbelievable. And Clive, he, he wrote this scene himself. Uh, it's one of my favorite in the entire movie. And here it comes. But this is your number one safety. Accidentally, but really. I also, the one thing I did want to talk about a little bit is that the camera style in the movie, although the movie is very larger than life, I wanted to sort of ground it in this sort of handheld documentary, um, you know, non-smooth camera style because I felt like if it was sort of documentary it would sort of make more of the movie um, feel believable even though the stunts were sort of um, unbelievable uh, of course I didn't have as many cameras as Paul Greengrass but I certainly loved the uh, style that he has in the Bourne movies and what was influenced by it this scene was something that we ended up adding originally I was just having the love making gunfight scene and I never thought I needed it, um, but some people felt like we need to know that Clive is actually inside Monica making love to her. And so we ended up adding this bit, which I actually think is good. It adds a moment of tenderness. But the real point of this was to show that her panties actually got off. And the funniest thing that happened this day is this is the day that my wife came to the set. And I'm saying, you got to pull the panties further away from her legs. Pull the panties away from her body. Pull them down slowly, Clive. And that's the day that my wife came onto the set. She has a great sense of humor and, um, and totally supportive of my wild, crazy movies. Um, but it was funny. She came that, that day. Um, actually, making the uh, lovemaking gunfight scene was easier than you'd think it would, would be. Clive and Monica had seen the animation I had done. They knew exactly what shots I needed. And after every shot, um, I would let them see the monitor. And Monica, you know, oh, oh, that's beautiful. They were totally into it, totally supportive. Um, 
And I really like this scene because, you know, cinema has always been about sex and violence since the very beginning. And I feel like the gunfight is sort of the purest, you know, form of movie violence. And I can't believe I'm the first. It seems like th this is the perfect idea of sex and violence in the cinema. And I can't believe I'm the first one to have done a gunfight making love scene. It's been out there. It's been in front of people's faces for, for since forever. It's unnatural. And I'm just glad that we got there first. Um, if I forget to tell you the other thing that I, not that it really matters uh, what firsts are in this movie, but when I was pitching Paul Giamatti a couple times, he goes, God damn it, Smith! I told him that it was going to be so close up that it was going to be the, the, the most close up God damn it in cinema history. And, and I think it is. I like this scene partially because uh, I just like the idea of Paul Giamatti's character always referring to his home life while he's in this manhunt to kill a baby in Clive Owen. Um, and the fact that he refers to these tender times with his son, that my son is you know, really into the Discovery Planet channel. Uh, I think it humanizes him. These villains can't be villains 24 hours a day. I like the fact that you get a sense that he has a life beyond the hunt. I shouldn't say, but this is a stock footage shot. That shot actually was stolen from Spider-Man, from stock footage from Spider-Man. But it kind of fit, fit, fit the architecture of this building. Um, I also like the idea that he's going to protect Monica Bellucci by having her go inside this tank. And we'll see them inside this tank later on. And I like it because they're becoming a couple now, and it's as if the tank, the inside of the tank, is their first home. I also like this sort of hard-boiled, um, you know, marriage proposal where he uses the trigger guard as the engagement ring. It really fits Clive and, and fits the tone of the movie, and it gets a, it gets a big laugh. Um, but I, I, it, it, it fits. I always try, at least when I'm writing the script, is, you know, try to use the most natural elements, elements that come out of the story, and it's called shoot 'em up So really, what would he use as an engagement ring but um, the trigger guard? Uh, it's kind of sweet. And I like her saying something about you are my star, you are my star in Italian. And again, the thing uh, that, that, that I think New Line responded to, I think Clive responded to, is here you have an action hero who's going to spank a lady in public because she's spanking her own kid. I think it's more than just the action in the movie that Clive responded to. I think it was this character, this angriest guy in the world that is going to dispense his own brand of justice whatever way he can. Um, I do have to say this actress here who played the mom was very, very excited about being spanked by Clive and had told all her friends for weeks that she was going to be spanked by Clive Owen. And she did love it. The kid was also awesome, by the way. It was great. This building actually is the bread factory. We actually shot many scenes in here. This was, that building in the background was Clive's home. The bottom floor we ended up using for uh, Clive's, uh, pardon me, the Hammerson's warehouse that you're seeing here. We also built the brothel set on another floor and we built the um, hospital set there. Um, it was the middle of winter, but it's this basically abandoned building that used to be, uh, was still owned by the biggest uh, uh, 
bread bakery owners in uh, Canada. They're like the richest people in Canada, and they use this building just for filming. And they actually heat it all year round. We shot it in the middle of winter. Um, but it was really great because it was kind of like our soundstage slash location. And it really made it easier. While I was shooting my first unit, my great second unit director, Eddie Perez, could go back to the sets I had already shot and get all the other shots I needed of all the guys getting shot, all the non-Clive Owen action shots. Eddie Perez, who had done Blade um, and uh, a lot of other great movies, uh, basically shot half the action for me and did a great job. But whenever he needed me, he could just come downstairs and I would run upstairs and say, yeah, yeah, that's the great framing. Yeah, get me that. Um, and so it was a really clever and efficient way. Um, once again, I mentioned that I love dogs and I love this idea of, of Hammerson being a, 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 um, a dog nut and the dog ends up being a clue in the movie. This is Stephen McCaddy, who you saw maybe a little bit in 300. He was one of the elders. He was also in History of Violence. He just won the uh, Canadian equivalent of, uh, um, of a, an Academy Award. I think the thing is called The Rocket or Rocket Richard, a great hockey player in Canada. Just a great, great, great actor. Um, and he built this character who was sort of like this Texas Marine guy, and he throws all this great sort of Marine lingo uh, that sort of enlivens his character. Again, I love Clive having these pet peeves. I have to tell you, all the things that Mr. Smith hates in the movie, the guys with the long ponytails trying to look younger than they are, or people going sipping on their coffee and going, ah, or people that spank their kids, you know, are all things that I hate. So the movie isn't quite, you know, autob uh, autobiographical, but um, all, there are a lot, there's a lot of me in here, and I always laugh when it's, uh, things that are from my personality end up in the movie. Um, it makes me laugh. This line, I thought would get a bigger laugh in the movie, and I still laugh at it, where he goes, no, um, I'm a tough guy with a pussy in my hand. I just like that the, the Paul Giamatti character would be smart enough and witty enough to twist words around. Uh, didn't get as the laugh that I was hoping it would get, but um, I hope you all out there appreciate it a little bit. Again, I, every scene in the movie was, had its own theme, the making love gunfight, the classic gunfight, the carousel gunfight. And I've always liked, when I was a kid, I had this book, this children's book called The Big Ball of String. It was about this kid whose mom made him sit in bed all day and couldn't get out of bed. So he ended up setting everything up in his room that he could turn on the TV set with strings. He could uh, pull uh, something from the refrigerator to his bedside by his string. And he had all these pulleys and strings running throughout his bed, uh, bedroom. And, and I guess maybe that, that's where this idea came from, the sort of Rube Goldbergian, you know, Wiley Coyote contraption where Clive sets up all these guns, ties the st uh, string to the triggers, and can shoot people from remote locations because he can pull these strings. Again, I like the character being a character here. I also like this bit here where Paul wipes his bloody hand on his cohort. It's just a nice bit of business. He could have just continued on with his speech, but it just makes him out to be a little bit more of an asshole, that uh, everybody is there to serve him. Uh, I also particularly like Paul's great rhythm in delivering this story about Clive and uh, Clive's backstory. The one thing that you will notice in this story is I... Clive never cops to um, his backstory. Throughout the movie, Paul's character is always trying to say, I figured you out. This is who you are. 
And I always think it's always interesting to keep a bit of mystery to the the hero. Um, the backstory certainly fits why Mr. Smith would be such a broken man. Um, but I kind of like in those Clint Eastwood movies, it's uh, where where he's the high plains drifter. He comes into town. People aren't sure who he is. He comes in and saves the day and then leaves. And, and there certainly was an influence of that here. Uh, even in this scene, Paul refers to you. Oh, yeah, my boss thinks that you're the Lone Ranger. Yeah, definitely the Western gunslinger was a uh, influence oh, in the writing of it. Tell me the one about the baby. I also think Clive looks so cool here, where he says, after I put you to sleep. Again, I just love heroes that fly around, roll around, that it's not just guys standing behind, you know, protection firing, that it's always something fun and energized. Run, Lola, run with a gun. It was all very interesting. Um, I always wanted to make uh, Paul Giamatti's men sort of more a rogues gallery, Dick Tracy, um, not, you know, not handsome guys. Then I had the Secret Service guys headed by the Lone Man um, that were sort of these handsome younger guys. And then I needed sort of an in-between uh, physical type for these Hammerson guards. Um, whenever you're making a movie, it's all about textures, and you got to be aware of it right down to, you know, your extras casting. One thing we, I was going to try to do, and I ended up pulling back from it, um, this guy that's going to get the drop on Clive here, if you look really closely, he has these kind of long nose hairs, and the scene wasn't long enough to get a real close-up to show the guy's nose hairs. But I, I wanted to create another guy that Clive would just hate that. Look, look you can see the guy's got long nose hairs. Uh, I just thought it would be funny, um, but uh, didn't have time to translate that on the screen. That shot is sort of stolen from Gears of War, the video game, where the gun, uh, the blood splatters on the lens. I call that the Gears of War shot. Again, the carrot comes into play. I, I just love how the carrot has different variations of uh, taking people out. I also love this calendar shot where he makes the butthole in the girl. It just makes me laugh. Yes, yeah, larger than life, but I think details. And here's the biggest goddamn in cinema history right there that I talked about. You may not notice, but in that wide shot on the tank, the guard that Clive punched um, crosses screen and his nose is all bandaged up. I like that. Uh, here again, here's their first home uh, inside the tank. I just like the absurdity that they're hiding out and sort of having this domestic scene. I also like the fact that a clue, the, the baby's poop provides them with the major clue in the movie. I, you know, you see all these movies, and they're all great, you know, where Matt Damon is in front of a computer screen, and he finds out about the Russian politician that he was involved with in his past and all that, and it's all so serious, and you pop cut onto the movie screen. I just think the movie, this has sort of a wicked sense of humor, and I like that the fact that shit is the reason why you can find out, you know, who's behind all this. I just think it's kind of fun, and it ties in. The baby is a character in the movie, and the baby sort of helps them uh, solve all their problems. I had a friend, John Sulak, who I wrote a script with, uh, called The Deadhead and the Co-Ed, 
and he told me about this bus that still exists that goes from uh, San Francisco to L.A. and L.A. to San Francisco, where you get on it like on a Friday night, and there are no seats in it. It's just a people with their sleeping bags and it's a 12 hour ride up to San Francisco but everybody is sort of like smoking pot and you know playing guitar and hanging out and you know maybe even you meet a girl on the bus and it goes it's sort of like a remnant of a hippie bus and so I put that into this movie one thing I really love about this uh, car chase scene is we used a Paul Oakenfold um, piece of music um, and if you listen closely uh, when Clive pulls the car out, there's sort of a James Bond guitar riff. Um, and, and I've talked about the, the source music, but I got very lucky in using this guy, Paul Hasslinger, uh, to do the score for the movie. Uh, he'd done Crank, he did Underworld, and he did a really great job at sort of doing this modern, western, modern, you know, uh, Sergio Leone sound to it, you know, with the guitars. He brought in a couple of guitar players from Beck, um, uh, to play in our score, and I really am indebted to him because he helped define the tone of the movie. Um, and throughout, it just enhances the movie, and he's just a great, great collaborator. Again, I just like the clever ways a hero gets out of a situation. I love him clobbering the guy here with the car door and, um, and then scooping up the gun. And this stuff is virtually, you know, shot for shot um, my animation. Um, I, it was the greatest pleasure making this movie to have a vision of it, animating it, so I had an animated version of the movie, and then having the movie turn out better than my animation. There, there's no bigger rush than, than, than taking it from the beginning to end like this. We had a great company, Mr. X, up in Canada, who did that. Actually, that was a digital BMW that uh, spun there. People say, oh, this is, you know, Coen Brothers raising Arizona-inspired, and I guess it is, but that really wasn't in my mind when I was making this scene. I just wanted a cool situation where he lost the baby, and you expect him because he's scooped up the gun he should be able to scoop up the baby here and it goes with my theory i love this sort of oh shit how the character is going to get out of this situation and then oh cool he's going to do it it's uh, i had a friend peter gould a writing partner who says oh yeah you have your oh shit oh cool theory of action scenes and here comes the old oh, cool part where this is the biggest applause in the movie and i just love it where he flies like a human bullet through the windshield to shoot these guys in the back Nobody gets here's the line because everybody's cheering, but I do like so much for wearing your seatbelts. I also like the fact that you just have this big triumphant moment, and then you have what is seemingly the lowest part of the movie. And I love Paul Giamatti where he goes, yeah, right here, when he runs over the baby. I just love his relish right there. I just love it. When I was on the set, I was dancing. Um, I also love, look at Paul's hair, you know, how wild it is sticking up there like clown hair. And this is one of the things where an actor can help you. We kind of felt like the dialogue I had written was flat. And I asked, you know, Paul, could you come up with something? And he came up with the idea, wow, that's twisted. This guy, Mr. Smith, he's twisted. And he doesn't even acknowledge his own twistedness at uh, running over a baby. And everybody laughs at that. And that was, you know, something Paul added to the script. Uh, the cast was just unbelievably supportive and creative in making the movie. This scene we ended up cutting off short, but you will notice that uh, Clive uh, steals a carrot here, 
And we had a short interlude with the the grocer here gets pissed off that Clive hasn't paid for the uh, carrot. And it was kind of funny, but it slowed down the momentum of the movie. And uh, if I had had a total dream come true, I thought it would be a funny scene to have Chow Yun-Fat be the grocer and get into it with Clive Owen there for uh, chomping on the carrot he didn't pay for. I want to see the senator. This actor, Greg Brick, was also in History of Violence. He was the sidekick of Stephen McCaddy um, in The Killing in the Diner at the beginning of that great Cronenberg uh, movie, and just a real pl- pleasure to work with, um, bringing the menace of the Secret Service man to it. Now, I should say, and I'm not going to elaborate on this, but you know, I told that you that throughout the movie everybody had their own fetish, well, there is some kind of uh, nasty fetish that uh, the lone man has here with his gun. That's why he's always cleaning it. Nobody ever gets it, and I guess it's okay nobody gets it because it's probably too nasty to detail. Uh, but when I did tell the actor about what I thought the intentions were behind him cleaning the gun, he had no idea it was there, and he sort of went dead for a moment, really pale, like, oh, man, that's what I'm doing with it? Anyway, bit of inside joke. Sometimes you put stuff that translates the screen, other times not. But um, this is Daniel Pilon, another great Canadian actor. And Daniel was telling me, and I haven't researched it, but he said when he was a young man, he was actually on the list for Bond, and he talked to the Broccoli's about being Bond. I had this uh, a great post-supervisor, Sarah Romley, on this movie, who uh, did a movie with Daniel years ago and said that he was in some of the John Wayne movies. So that gives you a great sense about uh, how long he's been around. I love this bit here where the woman comes in and they've got baby carrots on this tray. But no, Clive doesn't want the baby carrots. He's got to have his macho carrot. Again, nobody ever notices it, but it's there for me. Maybe we'll get our bill passed in the first year. Also, I like, I mean, the movie, the plot is fairly streamlined, but there are clues here. I've set up the dog. I set up the dog hair um, so, so that Clive can find out that this politician has now gotten in bed with the, uh, uh, the gun owner, Hammerson. Uh, so there are enough clues in detecting work here, but I didn't want to slow down. This is not a detective story. It's an action story. I also like in this scene that Clive, throughout the movie, has been very hard-boiled, very cool and calm. But there is this slight moment where he says, you know, get out of the way or I'll fucking kill him. And I love the fact that he changes his texture here in the movie that I hadn't seen before. Um, the one thing, Clive and I were always very, very much in sync. Oftentimes when I gave him a direction for a new take, I'd start the sentence and he'd fill, fill in the sentence because he knew exactly what I wanted and what the, what the shot needed. Um, we had a very, very efficient sort of um, dialogue about uh, when we were making the movie. He, he and I were very, very much in sync. Uh, just a total pleasure to work with. Back up. Back up. Back up or I'll kill him. Oh, please. I had to do it. I want to live. I am meant to be president. You know, I do also like the movie is larger than life, and you're thinking, how the hell is it going to get out of this? And when it finally comes to the skydiving scene, the audiences are just laughing with it because the movie is definitely going everywhere that you could possibly think. And I've heard these big laughs right at the beginning of the skydiving, like, oh, man, yeah, of course, this is what this movie needs. Uh, and I appreciated that. The game is over. You rolled the dice. You lost. I also like that it's not expected in the middle of the movie that Clive is going to kill the politician. He is the good guy. Um, but, you know, this guy is a total hypocrite. 
And the fact of the matter is, is by killing this guy, he, he legitimately has a chance of protecting the baby and DQ because they won't need them anymore once this politician who needed the baby's bone marrow is dead. Uh, and I do like the fact that uh, his, his gun control policies probably would have passed by uh, his, his assassination by a bullet wound. Um, so Clive's motives here does make sense, even though it's a pretty rough justice. Uh, but I, I think it's good to surprise the audience a little bit. Um, you know, people uh, have sort of, some people pointed out, oh, yeah, there's a, you know, sort of a anti-gun message in the, in the movie. Uh, and there's a talk about gun control here. You know, I really focused in making the movie was really about family, that this Clive Owen character is healed by having the baby. Um, and, and DQ forming this family. The gun stuff really came out of the movie being it's gun-centric. It's called shoot 'em up If there was a drug plot, it would be sort of out of place here. Um, and so I wanted the plot to grow out of it being called shoot 'em up Hence, all the plot, you know, points are about guns, you know, in the gun industry. And it's just because it makes sense organically from the story point. I, I don't think in a movie like this that you really can get into a real political dialogue. It's just supposed to be a good time at the movie. And I just wanted all the elements to feel like they, they belonged. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of James Bond. Obviously, that Moonraker scene where Jaws jumps out of the, the plane after Roger Moore and they have this fight in midair is what inspired this scene. And again, I can't believe that nobody else has thought of, wow, you know, skydiving is so dynamic, so cinematic. Um, why not have a gunfight in midair? And so, to me, you know, if I never make another film in my entire life, the fact that I made this uh, gunfight while making love scene and this gunfight in uh, skydiving, I, I could be a happy person because I, I got there first. They're just, just the idea of them is fantastic. Uh, we had this effects house, Mr. X up in Canada, did, did a great job with this. We hung Clive from wires for four days in a row. We ended up, Eddie Perez, ended up getting this special harness from Cirque du Soleil, so it would be a little bit more comfortable for Clive uh, to do this scene. But he was a real trooper, literally about nine hours uh, for four, from Monday through Thursday, he was hanging upside down um, while we shot this against a uh, green screen. Kale Boyder came up with that great idea to have the arm cut off, and I think it was a great idea. Um, it just helped. He also, and Jeff Katz suggested, we need a little bit more humor in this scene. So that's why we added the rats and the cut-off arms. But I always did like this idea, and it was in the original draft, that you never see the aftermath of these gunfights. What would have happened? The, gun, the gunman would have fallen out of the sky and landed on the ground. And I think it's pretty funny that you actually show it here, because most movies wouldn't go there. This is an old rubber factory. They actually uh, manufacture rubber balls here. And anything rubber made in Canada, they make here at this factory. I just love all the pipes and the steam. Once again, I like the Looney Tunes, Kill the Rabbit, ringtone, Waking Clive Up. Sort of reminds the audience what the tone of the movie is. And, and I, I love sort of that the movie is larger than life, but I told the actors to just play it straight, and they never wink at the camera. Um, and for me, you know, some people uh, see it as, you know, a big comic book, and, you know, some people use the phrase spoof. I never intended to make the movie a spoof. To me, it's a straight-on action movie with lots and lots and lots of humor and with sort of a twisted plot. 
Um, maybe the sort of the outrageousness or people think this because I've piled on so many action scenes one on top of the other that it becomes way larger than life. But for me, I'd rather have more action scenes than less. I'd rather have a guy falling out of an airplane than, than not. Um, Paul Giamatti said the reason he signed on to this uh, uh, movie is because he got to break Clive Owen's fingers. And he does a really great job here uh, in this scene. You can tell he loves it. No more Mr. Um, sideways. He's going to be the alpha male from now on. Uh, in the scene where he ends up uh, grabbing the shard of glass and charging at Clive, he, Paul had always said he wanted to be in one of those Sam Raimi Evil Dead movies. And he felt like he really got, uh, he satisfied a lot of his actors' urges by doing this movie. Uh, his, we were at the premiere, and it was the first time he saw the movie with a crowd, and he ends up dying, and people applaud. He had said that was one of his goals throughout his entire life. It made him happier than he ever had been about a, a role when he got to see the audience cheering that he died. It's your choice when the pain stops. Why are you doing this? I also like the fact that Clive here is willing to be very, very vulnerable and show a lot of pain here. Uh, he's been the tough guy throughout the movie. He's sh shot up so many people, and he, again, provided this much different texture in the movie. And people go, you know, here he shoots 134 people in the movie and nobody ever hits him. Well, he actually does get hit in the shoulder here um, in the skydiving scene. Um, but the fact is, is that, okay, he doesn't get shot really, but he does pay a price. He is a character that gets wounded and feels a lot of pain. So I feel like this scene makes up for the fact that he doesn't really get shot in the movie. Once again, I ask you. Also love, I had this great set decorator, Cal Lukes, who ended up uh, getting all these dead animals, uh, taxidermied stuffed animals to be in the background. And I like in the movie that uh, Hammerson, you think you know everything about him, but then you, get, you discover he's got this odd hobby of stuffing all these animals that he's probably shot while hunting. And he's even willing to hunt, you know, stuff his pet dogs. Um, you'll see later on that there's another dog upstairs that's a stuffed dog. Uh, and to me, I kind of find that Riley funny. Um, it also makes this scene very, very creepy. Funny enough, Eddie Perez, and I think even Clive met this guy. He's sort of a millionaire socialite in Toronto, and they went up to his apartment. It was this loft on the top floor of this building, and he had all of these animals on display. And it turned out that our set, direct, uh, set decorator had contacted him, and it was the same guy uh, who had all these animals that we put in this scene. A lot of happy accidents that happened. I don't know, the movie's pretty violent, but, you know, I think you go into an R-rated movie expecting some violence, so there's a bit of blood here, but uh, I like it. And never in my life did I ever think I'd do an action scene with Iggy Pop to the, in the background. i got to really thank my music people, uh, also uh, Dana Sano and Aaron Scully, uh, for working with Brian Richards to make this very hip, way cooler soundtrack than I could ever come up with. Uh, I, I will admit, when I was a kid, my first album I ever bought was a Partridge Family album. And ever since then, I realized that I was musically stunted and that I would need to rely on other people. Thank God I had these great people helping me um, uh, pick the music here. Again, 
uh, the movie's called Shoot 'Em Up, and I'd always been taught uh, in screenwriting classes, whether you're doing a comedy or a drama uh, or an action movie, try to find what would be the ultimate nightmare for your hero. And I feel like your hands are the most important part of aiming a gun and pulling a trigger. And by having all his fingers broken, I felt like this was the ultimate nightmare for the hero. Um, and, and I like that the movie has had so many large set pieces that I like that the climax here is actually intimate and very mano a mano. Uh, and I also like the audience thinking, geez, he lost his gun. You know, how the hell is he going to get out of this situation? And, and, and the, the fun of the movie is, is watching Clive get out of these crazy situations. And they are very surprised. There's the dog I talked about. Um, when he uses the gun, the bullets between his fingers and puts his hand in the fire. Originally, I had a different idea about how Clive was going to kill Paul. And I met Clive for the second time on the set of Inside Man. and says, I'm going to change the script. I think this is the way that you should kill Giamatti. He goes, oh, that's great. And he ended up telling Spike Lee about it and his agent about it. And he especially loves the bit where he blows on his fingers like a smoking gun at the end of this. I just think it's just kind of fun and fits the spirit of the movie. I think Paul is such a good sport getting killed here. Also, the movie, again, is very streamlined, lots of action. Um, I feel like there are three things going on. Obviously, there's the mystery of why the baby wants to be killed. There's the mystery of who this guy, Mr. Smith, is. And there's a love story between him and Monica. So I feel like there's, there's a fair amount going on in this streamlined movie. And I do like this small mini subplot of uh, Paul always talking to his wife. And at the end, when he's dying, he's upset that she's still leaving him. You know what I really hate? This final showdown here. If I had my druthers, I kind of wish maybe that this living room set, uh, which was a set that was on our studio lot, was a bit, little bit larger. I kind of feel like these guys are a little bit too close together. They should be farther apart like a Leone movie. But somehow everybody says they enjoy this scene anyway, that it's so funny and that they're at this point where they're just, you know, all beaten up and they're sh trying to shoot at, at each other. So I guess I could feel okay that most people say it's okay, but uh, I kind of feel like the two need to be separated more, uh, like uh, the end of the good, the bad, and the ugly. Again, you know, I have to tell you, I love dogs, and I love the idea that the dog ends up with Clive, and it gets a big laugh. Uh, a lot of people said, you know, these dogs are really hard. You're going to have to do, spend a lot of film getting the dogs to do it right. This dog nailed it in every take. That's take one, that dog. Awesome. And I just think it's funny. Here you got this villain who has this dog, and the hero ends up with the, the villain's dog. Um, I had two German Shepherds, so it's also nice that the, the best trained dog in Canada was a German Shepherd. Reminds me of my dogs. This ending here, um, the original script ended with Clive just kissing Monica, and then we go to credits. And when we were filming it, even, you know, a few weeks before filming it, I always felt like it was something was missing. The movie was so violent. Also, people don't get that that sort of looks like a nipple, Dairy Queen, you get it. It's okay if nobody gets it, but the, the, the building shaped like a nipple always tickled me. Um, 
I knew that the film needed a bang-bang ending, but I felt like during production, if I asked for a bang-bang ending and rewrote it, they would take away days from my other action scenes. And I didn't want to sacrifice something in the middle of the movie for something here. And fortunately, when we were done making the movie, uh, everybody looked at it and goes, wow, the movie's great, but it would be better to leave the audience you know, with a big smile on their face. And they gave me a little bit more money in a couple days to shoot this ending. Uh, which I call basically body puppeting. And I think it makes a huge difference in the movie to end with this sort of fun, you know, violent ending that recalls all the things you liked about the movie. The carrot, like the Clive Owens hating stuff, um, and, and even ending on the uh, Motley Crue song. I also do like the fact that she ends up working at a Dairy Queen, really. All these three guys I called the meth heads were so great. Uh, they totally nailed it, and they, they create a different kind of villain here. Again, I kind of don't like that kind of earring, although if you looked at my toes, they would look a little bit like that. I don't like long toenails and the Birkenstocks, and uh, obviously giving the finger is going to tick Clive off. And again, I just think all the thing I love about this movie is sort of the choreography of the action. It just seems to flow like an action dance. And, uh, and a lot of it was figured out in the animation. I hope everybody takes a look at the, the animatics that were sort of the basis of how we shot the live action. And it's tricky. You need to make sure that you show the geography, but you don't slow down the editorial rhythm. I really do think you can tell what's going on here, but it does happen very, very fast. And then uh, I, I do have to say, um, I had a company called Picture Mill that did these end credits. They came out fantastic. And I love the fact that uh, they put in all these visual puns that sort of refer back uh, to the movie. You'll come up here on Peter Powell's credit and you notice that they shoot out the POW and Peter POW and the director of photography uh, credit tilts down, sort of like that table did in the opening sequence. Um, uh, you never see Clive Owen cut the guy's hand off that he uses to get the, the gun to work, but I do think this sort of reminds you of it. And here, sliding in the blood reminds you of the oil slick at the very beginning of the movie. Um, you know, and also, well, I uh, have to have a, a, a breast joke here. Uh, it has sort of a feel of a uh, Maurice Binder Bond-like credit sequence or those great Saul Bass. And, and I really like leaving the audience with sort of a um, going-away present, uh, a nice design credit sequence. It makes the audience feel, I think, when I go to the movies, that they cared about every element of the movie. I have to say here, I really appreciate the opportunity to make this movie. Bob Shea, who saw my animation and said, oh my God, I want to greenlight this movie. He was the godfather of this movie. Um, I would not be in this position having made this lifelong dream project if it wasn't for Bob Shea. Toby Emmerich was very generous. Um, he went after and paid for all the, the actors I wanted. He gave us more money for the music. Leon Dudevar, or my uh, production executive, kept me on track. Um, all the great people at, at New Line, Sarah Romilly, my post um, supervisor, Scott Gershon, we didn't even talk about all the great sound work 
in the movie, um, that scene in the Smith's crib where Clive is rappelling down. Scott ended up doing these NASCAR pass-bys, and so you got this vroom, vroom of the bullets going by that are actually race cars going by. Scott Gershon was always, always doing these amazing sort of taking abstract sounds and putting them to gunshots or explosions. And, uh, uh, he, and when we were done, they have what is called the M&Es, which is the music and effects, so that when you send it overseas and they put in a dubbed version in Clive, they have all the sound effects they need to mix. He said this was the densest and most layered M&E track that he ever delivered. Anyway, thanks for watching Shoot 'Em Up. Uh, I had a great time making the movie, and I hope you had a great time watching it.